kids go, because you kids are probably more tech-savvy than most of the church, just because that's your generation, uh, we're just going to run through the website really quickly, and, th- and then I'll dismiss you guys. I promise. So we had a, a, a few people kind of ask a couple of questions, and we tried to streamline your website experience as easy and as user-friendly as possible. So, Shayla wants to, ah, lovely. So, how many of you go to the website every week? Nobody? Okay. Just me then. Um, so, this is the home page. Now, if you're like at home one Sunday, you're not feeling well or you can't come to church and, and you want to catch the live stream, so that only means Sunday morning, and you're like, oh, I'd like to watch this. All you do is scroll down on this home page, and it is right there, and then you click that, and then you'll get brought to our, this is going to be weird because we're going to watch what's going on, but this will probably be 15 seconds delayed from what we're actually doing right now. So it takes a moment to do its thing, or two. Shayla, are you doing that? Because that's... That was fun. So <laughs> it will work for you at home when you click that link. But we're, we've got stuff running, and so it got confused. Anyway, so that's the home page. That's how you find that. Uh, up at the top now, we have four little sections on each side of that little BPC logo. And those are the various things that you might want to look up. So you want to learn about our church, you click about. You want to see our leadership structure, you click there. Uh, If you click Sunday, as an example, then you will have ways that you can get involved, Sunday morning service and our location. There's Sunday school uh, and then parking and access, because, you know, we live here and people have that question a lot. Gather are ways that you can gather together in the various Bible studies that exist, right? So we have men's breakfast, we have ladies' uh, study and women's sorry, ladies and women, so it's the same thing, study. Um, Lunch to go will no longer be there, and in its place, we're going to have our new soul food. That has not been completed yet online, but that is coming. Uh, And then on the right side, there's the teaching link. Now, if you missed a Sunday or you want to pass on or forward something to people, right here, there's that all, this is just the sermons right there. However, if you click on podcast, or YouTube, you'll go to our podcast site or our YouTube site, and then you can find everything there, and it should all be in the right order. And if then you want to pass on one of these to somebody, if you think the service would bless somebody, you can just click it. You can hit copy link, and you can send it to their email. Or uh, you can, if your friends on Facebook, you can send it straight to their Facebook, whatever you like. And Oh, is this our Apple podcast? So you can do the same here as you can click on that, and you can send it to a friend. And so we're trying to make that really, really, really simple. Uh, If you go back one more again, Shayla. Uh, So up at the top, serve. That's ways you can get involved, and we need help in various ways. So like food bank, you could get lunch to go, we'll change. Sunday school, and then volunteers, generically speaking. So I'm going to use this moment to explain something that's going to happen in a couple of weeks. We had a really unfortunate scheduling conflict with everyone in our church who does sound. And so one of the weeks that we're away in Africa is we have nobody to run that. And so Jordan's going to come that Sunday. She's going to lead worship as to quote Lee the way we did it thousands of years, show up and listen. 
and then Jim Houston's going to preach, and he has a big voice, so that helps. And then you're all going to want to move right close to the front, and we're just not going to be able to have an online service that week. Uh, and that's just an unfortunate scheduling thing, but it showed us the need for a few more people to help at the back. So if you'd like to, it looks intimidating. Shayla's a great teacher. So it's not as scary as it looks. But if you'd like to help out with the computer side of things and the live streaming, or if you'd like to help out with the actual soundboard, uh, we're getting a brand new soundboard in just a couple of weeks. And so we'll, we'll teach and equip uh, everyone how to do that. So that's kind of the website. And then resources, give, if you want to give online, you can do that. Uh, and resources as well are like right now media. There's all kinds of opportunities. There's the Bible Project, which I use sometimes. There's various little suggestions that we put of things going on in today's world. If you're feeling anxious about something, you can go and you can click and you can find information. So that is the website. I take no credit. Now, also at our last week's board meeting, we figured out something um, with the Give Online thing that Phil is going to, as our new treasurer, he's going to come and he's going to explain that because I don't know how to explain that. But he'll come hopefully in the next couple of weeks and share uh, a little bit about that with us. So I hope that is clear to you and, and you can just pass on any of those resources, any of those specific Sunday mornings that you think, man, this, this family member of mine or this friend of mine, they could really be blessed or encouraged by this. We would, we would just encourage you to send that out as you can. Okay, we're going to switch gears here. Uh, a little bit. As I mentioned, this is going to be a bit of a strange uh, morning because we are going to look at Daniel 5 in a moment. Oh, Sunday school. Yeah. Thank you, Smonga. Kids, you can, uh, you can rip off with Deb. We are going to look at Daniel 5, but before that, we're going to deal with a little bit of what's happening in our world. Uh, some of you may have seen the video update that I put out on Thursday morning addressing. I had a few conversations with people throughout the week saying that what they're seeing in the news and in the media is, is really kind of rattling them. And they're not sure how to process. They're not sure how to have conversation with. They're not sure, we could say it this way, is where is God in what's happening in our world? And that is something that I addressed Thursday morning because I didn't want to wait until Sunday. I thought it was important to get that out. But I also do want to talk about it briefly this morning and, and I was about probably 85% done my sermon when this kind of came to me on Thursday and I went, I think, I think I need to address this, but I also think I need to deal with what's happening in Daniel 5. And when I got to the end, I went home and talked to Shayla and I was like, I just don't know how to conclude this whole thing. And then the next morning, Friday morning, as I went in to kind of wrestle through with it, God just made it abundantly clear to me that they're essentially the same issue. And we're going to tie them right together. And so I hope that what you hear this morning encourages you, not just from a standpoint about what happens in Daniel 5, though there's some really unique things and, and really historically interesting things, but also what's happening in our world today. So I just want to flip to Matthew 24. And I talked about this on Thursday briefly. I forgot to get you the, the notes, April. I'm sorry. So... She, unless she can fly like the speed of light here. In Matthew 24, Jesus addresses a concern that is very similar to the one that we have in our world. 
We see what's going on, and all we can think of is that the end must be nearer. And just from a factual standpoint, it's one day closer than it was yesterday. We know that. We don't know when it's going to come. But as we kind of think and process and see the hurt and the pain and war and fighting and so many innocent people getting caught up in it and refugees fleeing their homes, their country, their language, their culture, it can be deeply upsetting to us. But what I want to remind us of is the fact that that is not a new situation, that this is history. Right from the beginning of the Bible, we see this happening where man has a chance to submit to the rule under God and they choose not to and they choose their own way. And they think, my way is better. I know what to do. And when you read through the Old Testament, you see war after war and nation conquering nation and fighting all through. And then you come into the New Testament and the disciples are under the oppression of the Roman government and all Christians are fighting and and Nero is lighting Christians on or or pouring wax on them and lighting them on fire to illuminate his gardens. This is history. We go through post-biblical history and we see this, and and here's the reality is every single one of us in this room, for our entire lifetime, there have been people in this world who are under the attack of war, that are being displaced from their homes, that are being targeted for all kinds of reasons, whether that be religious reasons, whether that be ethnic reasons, It was only in 1994 that nearly a million Rwandans were slaughtered to death. But for some reason in today's world, with all of the technology we have available to us and a lot of other reasons that I don't want to talk about today, we look and we see and we can't help and we go, how could God let this happen? Well, Daniel has been teaching us that, hasn't he? Daniel and the Hebrews exiled off and conquered by Babylon and exiled off into Babylon. Their culture, their way of life trying to be stripped away from them so that they serve and only know the Babylonian gods and not the one true God any longer. And yet Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and and the first four chapters that we've seen is their focus is on this, is that God is still in control. That God is still on the throne. That God has purpose and plans amidst great chaos. And so while we all of a sudden, it's right in front of us as we turn on the news or turn on social media, is what I hope it reminds us is that this is a normal thing for many people in the world. And they've had to endure fighting and displacement of their homes and some of their loved ones for forever. And so I'm not trying to belittle what's happening in the Ukraine one bit. I'm trying to help us open our perspective and to see this is what mankind does apart from God. We have a great ability for evil and fighting and to conquer. And so Jesus talking to his disciples when they were kind of thinking, man, the Roman government is oppressing us and and killing us. And as we read through, especially books like 1 Peter, we see just the intense persecution of that. And so in verse 3, it says this, as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. 
Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Jesus continues to explain, and basically what he's preparing us for is a world that is void of God and the lordship of Jesus Christ is going to get ugly. It's going to get worse. And so while we don't have simple answers for why is God allowing these things to happen, what we do have is a book called the Bible that we can read through and we can see that God redeems amidst crisis. That God has purpose in suffering. That God is at work no matter how ugly the world might seem. And so... At the very end of all of this, I want to say this. When we turn on the news, when we see social media, when we see the fighting and, the, and we don't know how to process it all, I hope that what we as Christians do is we have a, a greater degree of empathy and compassion for the refugee. For those who have had to make a choice to say it is better for me to flee everything and start over in a new country, in a new culture where I don't know the language and I'll lose all my academic stuff and I'll have, have to start over from ground zero with a job. It is better for me to bring my family to that than to stay where I live. That that would impact us and that we would re- be reminded of just how blessed we are where we live. The freedoms that we have and, and I would argue then the responsibilities that we have to say, what am I doing to help the refugee? All through the Old Testament, there's laws given to the nation of Israel to say there are refugees and here's how to treat them. Here's how to care for them. Here's how to welcome them in. And so may we not try to figure out answers, not try to figure out why God has let this happen, but may we go, God is a God that redeems the most ugly, most broken, most wicked situation we can see. He can use it for his good. And he wants to use his church to do that. And I don't just mean corporately, but I mean individually. Each of us. What are we called to do? If we turn on the news and we see this and our heart breaks, is are we going to then step out in faith and, and figure out how can I help? What organizations do exist so that I can put some resources there or put some time there? Compassion and empathy should lead us towards action. And so that's simply what I want to call us to as individuals is there are people all over the world, some that have never known a life other than fighting and war. How will we care for them? How will we pray for them? How will we step out in faith? Let's just pray for this situation for all in the world that are suffering right now, and then we'll get into Daniel. God, we know that we live in a very broken world. And when nations, and specifically leaders of those nations, choose that their way is better than God's way, we've seen what happens. And we're going to see this morning in Daniel 5 what happens. God, may you remind us of the importance of submitting to the Lordship of Christ in all things. Remind us of the refugee, the hurt, the broken, those that are in desperate need. And would you remind us of our unique time that we find ourselves in the blessings that you have given us so that we might bless others. God, everything that you have given us is not for us. It's for you. It's that we might love and be the hands and feet of Christ. 
And so, God, I pray for all those in the world right now, the Ukraine and many other parts of the world, where there is needless fighting, where nation is trying to conquer nation, where people are viewed as subhuman. God, would you be at work in those hearts and those minds? Would they come to an understanding that the only way to have peace is through Jesus Christ? And so, God, we pray for miraculous things to happen, not, not only for war to end, though that would be our prayer, but perhaps more importantly, that people would see their need for Jesus in these moments and that people would come to faith. God, put on our hearts what you would have us do to help. And may above all, we never cease to pray for those who are in need. As we open Daniel 5 and as we see what happens when a ruler refuses to submit to Christ, when they refuse to humble themselves under the one true God. Remind us of what happens so that we might not make those same choices. So be with us in these moments now. Amen. So between as I mentioned kind of last week, is between chapters 3 and 4 of Daniel, there's a significant time period, about 30 years that passes. And the same is true for us now. Between chapter 4 and 5, historically speaking, uh, there's about 30 years that pass before this King Belshazzar comes on the scene. But let me just remind us of last week a little bit because a question came to me in kind of a roundabout way that I wanted to talk about is this idea of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar for those seven years when he was a wild animal. And uh, the real short answer is I don't know. There's not a lot written in Scripture. Actually, there's nothing written in Scripture except what we read last week. But if you dig into Babylonian history, there is talk of it from Nabonidus, who is uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's son. And I'm going to explain all of that because there's some really confusing um, potential for being confused about the royal kingship here. But Nabonidus does have some writing about this. But scholars kind of all agree that had Nebuchadnezzar died as a wild animal, this would be a huge thing in history. But because this was a very, considered a very embarrassing few years of his life, but he came out of it and then ruled for about seven more years, that it was just one of those things that was recorded and then kind of redacted and redacted and redacted until well, it's not really something that we talk about. And so you can find a little bit about it, but basically it is this, is King Nebuchadnezzar fled the palace, um, right, basically lost his mind, turned into a wild animal, ate grass and laid in, the, laid in the grass and slept there and everything. But it seems like because of what happened with Daniel, because the prediction or the prophecy came so accurately true, and because he had said that it will be for a time and when Nebuchadnezzar humbles himself, he'll be exalted again. They believed that, and so they trusted Daniel, and so some, some of the royal people probably kind of overlooked to make sure he was there and hadn't, you know, run off into the wild, and they couldn't find him. And then his son, uh, Nabonidus, ruled in his stead, but all the while understanding that Daniel had prophesied that this would come to an end, and he would have to give the kingdom back to his father. 
And so that's the historical uh, context of what happens as we approach chapter 5. When we get to chapter 5, we all of a sudden have this King Belshazzar. He's in one chapter of the Bible, that's it, and historically there's a lot of argument about who this guy was. Many scholars for many years tried to um, argue that the book of Daniel lost all of its credibility because there never was a King Belshazzar that ruled over Babylon according to history. That is true. And I'll explain that in a moment, but that does not nullify Daniel. In fact, in verse 7 of this chapter, there's a hint that if we study hard, we see history, and then we interpret what Daniel's saying correctly, we realize that Daniel's very well, very well aware of the situation. And so this is one of those moments that I think the Bible really does an incredible job at this. So we'll explain this as we go, but let's read the first 12 verses of Daniel 5. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. And the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave away, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found him, found in him. Excuse me. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. As far as we're going to get this morning, next week we're going to look at actually what happens to King Belshazzar. But I want to remind us of this, is at the end of chapter 4 last week, what we seem to see and what I argued was that Nebuchadnezzar had an encounter with God. He humbled himself before the king. Sorry, he humbled himself before the one true God, and God restored to him his kingdom. And he writes in the end of 4 this psalm of from God's... God's dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does nothing. Sorry, and he does according to his will among the heaven, the host of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay his hand. So he finishes this like section of what we see of his life with this praise that God is the one true God. 
And I do think that Nebuchadnezzar genuinely came to repentance of that, but that's not something that I ever would try and argue um, with any kind of factuality because the Bible doesn't outright explicitly state it. But what seems to be is there's this huge change and he rules about seven more years and then chapter 5 starts. So this is 23 years after Nebuchadnezzar's death. But we don't see that same humility any longer. God had been at work in Nebuchadnezzar, slowly humbling him, slowly getting to see the greatness and the power of his might until we finally got to this conclusion in chapter 4 and we're like, yes, this is what we've been waiting for, only for chapter 5 to start and us to see it go back 10 steps. The truth of that is not only for those in Babylon. But if you read First and Second Kings, specifically the tribe of Judah, you see all the kingdoms come. And most of them are awful. Worshipping idols and setting up high places to worship other gods. But occasionally, a king would come who would repent and who would bring the nation under submission to the one true God, remind them back to serving him. But what you often see in that pattern is that king's son, when he took over, went way worse than the previous king before him. So the point of this goes right back to what we're seeing in our world today, is a nation and a ruler who does not submit themselves under the lordship of Christ gets real messy real fast. Because they say, my way is good. My way is the best. And we can see this in the news now. If you read things from what's going on in Russia, you're like, how could he possibly think this is okay or justifiable? But clearly he does. Because he's chosen my way is better than God's way. And that's what we have here with King Belshazzar. So let me give you a historical context of who this is, just so that we're real clear. As I said, there was no actual king named Belshazzar that ever ruled Babylon according to history. When Nebuchadnezzar died, his son Nabonidus ruled in his stead. So so he had already ruled those seven years that King Nebuchadnezzar kind of lost his mind. And he was ruling at that point in in the palace in Babylon. But when Nebuchadnezzar died, and we're not, the, the, his, the history isn't clear of this, but at some point shortly after that, King Nabonidus decided he was going to rule in Tima in Arabia, which is about 500 miles away from the palace. And he went to rule out there in kind of obscurity, and, and all we know for certain is that it was for religious reasons. It appears to be that he did not want to worship and serve the king or the, the gods of Babylon. It seems as though what happened to Nebuchadnezzar had some kind of an impact on him and he chose to go and rule somewhere 500 miles away. And so in his stead in the palace is this fella named Belshazzar. Now again, historians aren't real clear on a lineage standpoint whether it's Nabonidus's son or if it's through another concubine of Nebuchadnezzar or something. They're not really sure But Nabonidus is king over Babylon, but he's not ruling in the palace, and so Belshazzar was placed in that place. You could kind of think of it as maybe like the crowned prince, but he never, according to history, actually was the ruler. And in fact, in chapter 5 here, the only time that we see him at the end of chapter 5, he's killed, he's overthrown, and Babylon falls, and the Medo-Persia empire begins. And so Belshazzar well, he was real bad. We'll say it that way. In fact, in, in chapters 7, 8, and 9, when we get there, 
in a couple of months, um, we're going to see the, the chronology of Daniel go backwards a little bit, and Daniel talk about some of his dreams. And he actually prophesied that in the third year of Belshazzar's reign that the kingdom would be overthrown and that the Medo-Persia Empire would take over. So we're not, again, we're not real clear as to when Nabonidus left and, and ruled from afar, but we know that Belshazzar was kind of put in his place, and, and we'll see that in verse 7 when we get there in just a minute. But let's look at the beginning here now. The historical context of this scene is a very strange one in all of the Bible. Basically, all of Babylon has been in war and is being conquered right then by the Medes. And so King Belshazzar gathers essentially everybody left in the palace to have some kind of giant drinking party. I don't know whether in his own arrogance he thought the palace could never be conquered. And so he was trying to prove a point. Historians talk about that there was uh, one of the great rivers went right through the palace and they had over two years stockpiled of food and some suggest that they were basically just going to wait them out because their, their city was impenetrable, or so they thought. So was Jericho's, just you know, by point of reference. God said, no, that's okay, I can take care of that. Or the alternative might be that they knew that this was the very end, and so they were just getting loaded so they didn't have to deal with what was happening. We're not really sure. But Belshazzar organizes this great party, and in verse 2 you see that he commands that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father, so that, again, Nebuchadnezzar his father, that's where it gets confusing, but all we have to do is study original language, and Aramaic father could mean dad, it could mean predecessor, or it could mean ancestor. And actually, that's not unique to Aramaic. That's the Hebrew, too. Who is Jesus often referred to as? Son of David. Is he the son of David? No. But is he in his lineage? Yes. So, again, let's not try and get hung up on those things. But it says, in, when Nebuchadnezzar conquered, he took all these, essentially, these sacred artifacts from the temple in Jerusalem. And that was a normal thing that happened when a nation conquered a nation. They would take their sacred articles, they would put them in their temple, essentially saying, my God is more powerful than your God. Look, we conquered you. But what was unusual was his request that we're going to now drink and worship the gods of gold and silver and bronze and wood and clay, whatever, with your God's things. That was a unique thing. Scholars say this is the first time in Babylonian history, so not biblical scholars, but secular historians, say this is the first time that something like that happened. It was like a direct assault on the power of Yahweh. They were saying the one true God cannot do anything about this. There's one thing we've learned in the Bible. Don't say that and don't act that way. And so he's you know, partying it up and, and drinking and getting loaded and all these things, worshiping all these other gods with sacred things. And then verse 5, what does God do? Immediately, when he sees what's happening, when Belshazzar outright defies the one true living God, this is like, in my mind, I'm thinking in David and Goliath. And Goliath is defying the armies of the living God. David sees and he goes, this, <laughs> this won't fly. We've got to deal with this. Now here God intercedes and the fingers of a human hand appear and write on the wall. And, and I mean, I love 
how it's written. His limbs give away and his knees knock together, right? Like great fear. We might say he was so scared he nearly fainted. Maybe you can identify. Maybe you've been in a moment of fear where you just you couldn't deal and your body started to shake or respond or, or you passed out or something. Is, is If you can imagine the greatest amount of fear you could possibly have, that's what's happened to the king here because he knows what he's doing. And he doesn't understand the interpretation yet. That's why he calls all of the astrologers and enchanters and stuff uh, to him. But he knows that it's bad because if you see a human hand writing on the wall, this is probably some kind of judgment. Just as Nebuchadnezzar thought a couple of chapters ago that we looked at. And so he immediately calls the king for the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers, all of them to come. And he says, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation, shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck. And then what does he say? He'll be made what? Does that all of a sudden make sense? Nabonidus is king. Belshazzar isn't, but he's ruling in his stead. Every other time we see, so Joseph, when he gets promoted in in Egypt, is you will be second only to the pharaoh. Daniel gets promoted into second below the king in all the affairs. Here he goes, he'll be the third ruler. He'll be greater than the astrologers and the enchanters and the Chaldeans, but he'll be below me because I don't have the authority to make someone second in command. So you might think we're reading into things, but I think Daniel's just saying very clearly something that the original readers, the original people there, they would have understood and seen because they knew that Belshazzar wasn't the actual king. He was only the crown prince, but he was still ruling. And so for us, historically, these little details become really, really important. So he calls all of them in, and it says none of them could read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Now, what's really interesting here, and we'll get to this next week, but why can't they read the writing? Right? So... They know Hebrew, just like the Hebrews knew Aramaic. So why can't he read the writing? Well, you'll have to wait till next week for that. Sorry, that was a little bit rude, but you just wonder. So he's greatly alarmed. His color changes, and, the lords, and his lords were perplexed. They don't know what this means. And then this adds to a little bit of the confusion as well. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall. So who's the queen? Because it already says you know, at the beginning here in verses 2, two to 4, that, his, that the king's wives and his concubines are there, and they're drinking out of the sacred objects. So, so who is the queen? So again, this is where if you have a really good Bible, um, like, like really good commentaries on it, you will see a little footnote that will say queen mother, referencing either specifically to Nebuchadnezzar's wife, who might still be alive, or Nabonidus' wife, which is probably more likely, and that she was there, but she's, her husband's kind of off ruling from some 500 miles away. And so we're not sure which one it is, but she has an understanding of Daniel who Belshazzar clearly doesn't because she brings and she says, there is someone in your kingdom. So where is Daniel? Why does he not know him? Well, again, this is not an unusual thing. Is King Nebuchadnezzar dies and then Nabonidus takes over and now Belshazzar is ruling in his stead is... Uh, royal changing of the guard, you might think. 
is he gets to pick new people who are going to rule and serve over him. And, some, and, Bel, and Daniel is in his probably early 80s at this point. So we're going to call him retired. Right? He's no longer serving the king in the palace. He's moved on. And that's not surprising. Historians say that every time a new Babylonian king took over, they had new people stepping into place. And, and that's why in uh, the first vision that Nebuchadnezzar has, when he's going to just start over completely from nothing, even though he's already put all these people into power, it's quite a really interesting thing about his rage, but, you know, another story for another time. So the queen says, there is someone actually, O king, that, that is here that can interpret, that does know. In fact, in your days, sorry, in the days of your father, Nebuchadnezzar, he said there was light and understanding and wisdom like whom? Like the gods. That's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar said in chapter 2 of him. In you is the spirit of the gods. And Daniel would take no credit for those things and say it's the one true God who can do miracles, who can interpret visions, who can see dreams. Daniel all the time was giving the credit to God whom it should be given to, and Nebuchadnezzar fought that all the way till the end of, of chapter 4. So he says, he is here, and, uh, and he, can, he can do it. There's an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems. All of these are found in Daniel. Now, it's interesting because that's the first time we see things like explain riddles and solve problems. So, like, Daniel obviously had a very significant impact in the palace. And, of course, we've seen that a few times in his dreams. But over the course of however many years of service that he had, obviously, he made a great impression on the queen mother and others as well. So, next week, we're going to look at what is the interpretation? What does Daniel do? And what does Daniel say? But as we kind of wrap this up, I want to remind us again Back in the end of chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar seems to humble himself under God and he wants to change how he's going to rule. But the very next generation, or the next two generations, I guess, decide, no, we're going to do it on our own way. We're going to rule. We're going to conquer. We're going to control. Whenever anybody chooses to do things outside of what God's authority is, judgment happens. And so next week we're going to see at the end of chapter 5 is that is King Belshazzar's last day. And he's killed. He assaults, he has a direct assault on the one true God and says, I'm going to take all your sacred relics, all these things. I'm going to, I'm going to drink out of them to, to defy you and to show there's nothing that you can do. Again, this is not new. You read through the Old Testament, this happens over and over and over again. Where God goes, no, I am in control, not you. And I have put you in place. And we've seen this with Nebuchadnezzar over and over in the last number of weeks. God has put Nebuchadnezzar in place for purpose and reason. Nebuchadnezzar kept doing it in his own way. And God in his mercy and his grace kept trying to bring him back. And eventually, it seems like he does come back. But at the end of the day, a new, kingdom, or a new king comes, new kingdoms come. And unless they follow and serve after the one true God, it all falls apart. And this is exactly what happened to the nation of Israel. This is exactly why they were put into exile. Because God said, you continually turn and worship other gods. You continually run away from me. You continually will not submit to me. And so I'm going to 
He says it this way, I'm going to leave you to the consequences of your own decisions. Any parents here ever say that to your kids? Right? Is sometimes we intervene, sometimes we step in, sometimes we just make things right, and sometimes we look at it, and in our wisdom, we look at our kids and we go, you need to learn from this. The consequences are yours to take. This is what a loving father does. And so it might seem crazy for us to look at the situation of the world around us and go, how, how could this be part of God's plan? Because God knows infinitely more than we do. And so we submit ourselves under him and we go, God, what would you have me do in the midst of this crazy situation that's happening? Remember Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they all looked at this and went, God has purpose, even in exile. That in our lives, God can do great things. Jeremiah prophesied and said that even in, in exile, seek the welfare of their land. That through you, I'm going to save them. That's always been God's plan. And so for us, this warning to Belshazzar, and we're going to see the fulfillment of that, but this warning to him is the same warning that's being given to the world today. If you do not submit under the lordship of Christ, it gets really messy really fast. Because we as people are really good at evil. We're really good at fighting. We're really good at being arrogant. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit to come to rule over us so that we would live for him and not us. And so as Jesus said, these things are going to happen. But the end is not quite yet. There's still more. And so we remind ourselves, we have lived in an unprecedented time and culture of religious freedoms that is not how the story ends in the Bible. And so as our religious freedoms and liberties get threatened and taken away in the, in the future, they're going to. Jesus said so. How are we going to respond as Christians? Are we going to put our hope completely in him or are we going to try and figure out some way to do it on our own while well, the Bible is filled with warning after warning after warning of that doesn't work? So we submit to Christ. We worship Christ. When it becomes illegal to worship Christ, we do it anyway. Because he alone can save. And so we end this morning, whether it's the Ukraine and Russia, whether it's the Middle East, whether it's Northern Africa, whether it's a part of the world we've never heard about. There are people all over the world that are suffering at the hands of unjust rulers. What are we as Christians going to do about that? How are we going to respond to that? Are we going to look at the scriptures and are we going to learn from the Old Testament and the Jewish people and saying we are called to look after the refugee? Or as James says, the orphan and the widow. Are we going to care for those who need help? That's what we've been called to do. Let's pray. God, for what we have seen in chapter 5, what we've seen all through the Bible, would you remind us of the importance that each of us submit under the Lordship of Christ and that we live the way you have called us to, with compassion and mercy and grace, that we would love those who hate us, that we would be more concerned with their spiritual heritage than their physical heritage that we would look for those who are in need and that we would step out and be the hands and feet of Jesus, that we would show them that there is a God in heaven who loves them 
And despite what their circumstance may look like, he wants to be in relationship with them and he wants to redeem that situation. So God, may you grow our hearts. May we recognize, may we understand that we have been amongst the luckiest of people in the world to live the way that we have. But as Jesus said, as the end approaches, it's only going to get worse. As people refuse to submit to Christ, as nations refuse to submit to Christ, it's going to get worse. And we're seeing this, at least in part right now in our culture. And so help us to prepare for that. Help us to understand that as the end comes, we as Christians still have hope. And so in just a minute here, as we take communion together, we are reminded of that very truth. That our hope is not in the world. Our hope is not in the governments. Our hope is not in the authorities. Our hope is in that you promised that you will come again and one day you will make all things right. And so that's where we put our focus. That's where we remind ourselves that one day everything will be under the authority of Christ in a tangible and practical way. And so God, we eagerly await no war, no fighting, no injustice, no pain, no hurt, no tears. But for right now, we acknowledge that we're in the midst of that. And so would we band together as a community of Christ? Would we encourage one another and would we remind each other to keep focus on Jesus? God, we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. And I'm just going to read from 1 Corinthians just as we take communion. Shayla, would you mind grabbing me some? I forgot. I told everyone else to, but I didn't. I just want to read these verses just as this reminder. When, when life gets hectic, when life gets filled with chaos, when life gets beyond our ability to understand or control or, or even know how to process, is we have a Savior. A Savior who has promised to be with us. A Savior who has promised that there is a day coming where all of this will be finished. So I just want to read these verses to us, and then we'll eat and drink together. 1 Corinthians 11, starting in 23, says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, excuse me, in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus knew that we forget so easy. And so when we gather together, the state of the world is astonishing, and we don't know how to process, and we go, there's a Christ, there's a Messiah who has given his life for me. And that's where my hope is. So let's pray and let's eat together. God, thank you 
that you have given us instructions in the Bible that as we regularly gather together, that we take our eyes off of the world because it's so easily overwhelming to us. That we focus our eyes on Christ and we remember that while there is not peace yet, at least physically, we know that we have spiritual peace because of the cross of Christ. And we know that that points us to one day, as it says here in the text, that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again, because when he comes again, then we will have peace. So God, we thank you for your plan of salvation. We thank you that Jesus went willingly to the cross, that his body was broken for us so that we might have hope. And in this hope, we praise you. Amen. Let's eat in remembrance of him. And God, for the cup that we hold in our hands, that represents the blood of Jesus poured out for us, we are reminded again that Christ submitted to your will to death on a cross, that he is the only one in all of history that did not choose his way over your way. And because of that blood, because of that sinless blood, we can find salvation and freedom. So God, we humble ourselves we sit under the authority of Christ. We drink this in remembrance that every day we need to remind ourselves, not my will be done, but yours. So let's drink in remembrance of him. Let's just close again in prayer. God, as we go from this place, May these truths, may these words of Scripture, may the promise of Christ rule in our hearts that we would not be overwhelmed by the condition of the world, but that we would rely on the power that the Holy Spirit provides, that we might be your hands and feet. And even as we finish now and as, as a few of us head off to help with soul food, God, I pray that we would be excited to to minister to our community, that we would gather together as church family and that we would be excited and, and have a great motivation for wanting to serve so that your name would be spread through the Bow Valley. God, thank you for those who have agreed to help and, and I just pray that others would consider how they might help in this ministry. May you receive honor and glory from us today. Go with us now, amen.